One of the ways that we describe growing up in homes is by the type of parents that we have. Some of us have parents who are too lenient. Others of us have parents who um, are too strict. The lenient parent, you know this because when you're talking about your family, you say things like, they let me get away with murder. Parents who are too strict, uh, you say things like, um, mama ran a tight ship around my house. And I've noticed that either of these extremes still present challenges for kids who... Uh, one of her parents dole out discipline. Uh, a few days ago, uh, Kristen and I, we've got three kids, they offer us ample opportunities to um, exercise sanctification. And uh, a few days ago, one of our kids did something that required a tough consequence, and after doling it out, uh, Kristen and I were so aware of the um, severity of what was going on in the heart of our child that there was an inherent question being asked by our child The question was this. The question was, uh, Mom, Dad, do you still love me right now? You've been there as a kid, haven't you, where you wondered, like, man, I know I messed up. My parents are coming down hard on me. And and deeply, you know you deserve what's coming to you, but you also want to know, but does this change anything between us? Right? And, And some of you maybe have walked into church today, and you hear the chorus of people saying, you are good, And you wonder in your own heart, if God's my father, I know he's punished me a little bit, and I wonder, does this change anything between us? How do I know that he's good? Does he still love me? Part of the question for for this is a question of really asking, God, have you given up on me? And knowing that God is our heavenly father, we already know the answer to this question, do you still love me? When when, when Chris and I were doling out our consequence to our child, we, we looked down at our child and we said, Of course we still love you. We will always love you. And you know the answer inherently as a human being created in the image of God that of course God still loves us. He will always love us. But you kind of want to know why, don't you? You kind of want to have it proven. So here's where we come. I want to look now um, at verse 1 of uh, Romans chapter 11. Actually, let's look back one more verse. Let's go back to 21 of Romans 10, because I I pleaded with you last week to see God as a God of love. God is a God of invitation. God is a God who, who in verse 21 of Romans 10, is doing this at the end of Romans 10. He's saying, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And I preached my heart out last week so you might know that in the face of our unfaithfulness, God has always been faithful. God has always been loving. And I tried to plead with you to let down your pride and go back to your father last week. Don't leave him out in the backyard begging you to come in, but go with him. There's a different way that scholars have read Romans chapter 10, verse 21. Not everyone is as optimistic as I am. You know that, right? You know you have a little bit of a pie in the sky pastor. You got a pastor who sees good in most things and fails to see the, the badness around us. And some theologians come at the world with a cynical perspective and they, they look at this verse in particular and, and they, they say it more like this. They say of Israel, he says, all day long, I do this, I do this, I do this to a people who give me no grace in return. Sounds a little bit like um, holidays around some of your houses. As if God was really like fed up in the background of this text. 
as if, um, you know, this is the moment at Thanksgiving where your grandma finally snaps because she's been working really hard while grandpa's just been sipping on the eggnog and not lifting a finger to appreciate her. Close to home, guys, this is Thanksgiving, Christmas season. Let's not be that guy this year, okay? Right? Amen? You bought a TiVo for a reason. But this is what happens sometimes, you know? Grandma flips, throws in the towel. She says this tirade of accusations. I work and I work and I work. I woke up at 3 a.m. to get this bird in the oven. I've not stopped to take a break. I've been on my feet so that you could have a good time, and this is the things I get. Some people uh, take Paul to be inferring that God is fed up with the unfaithfulness of Israel, that God has been uh, doing all these things, and, and, and some people want to read this and, and, and focus on the eternity of it. All day I've held out my, people, my hands to my people, but Paul wants to make sure we don't read it that way. And so look at what he says in verse 1, because um, you and I need to know if this is true that God is fed up with Israel, can't he also be fed up with us? And what Paul says here is going to prove what we just saying, is going to prove his sense of parenting, it's going to prove his eternality. Here's what it says. I ask then, I ask then, has God rejected his people? All of us together read these next three words. Last week I said that Romans chapter 10 is referring to the Israelites as the they that Paul keeps coming back to. And as we round the corner into this next chapter of Romans, Paul is referencing the children of Israel again when he asks, has God rejected his people? This is who Paul has in mind here in Romans chapter 11. It's the, it's the Israelites. This year... Um, is having already started, uh, the women in our church are studying the book of Genesis. And the Genesis uh, account is how God created the world and chose for himself a people and initiated his redemptive plan. And in a few weeks, I believe, the ladies are going to look at Genesis 12. Are you there yet? You're not? Next semester. You got a little bit of time. Let me give you a preview, ladies, what you're going to see. Because God promises Abraham descendants like the stars in the sky. And like the sand that borders the sea. He covenanted a special relationship with this one people group, the people of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham. They were a chosen people. They were a special people. They were God's people, his people. This truth is repeated over and over again throughout the Old Testament. Amos chapter 3 verse 2 says this, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. That's what God says to the Israelites. Deuteronomy 7 verse 6 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And the language is repeated time and time again throughout the Old Testament. It's easy to see how over the generations, the Jewish people could assume that they were assured of salvation because of the DNA that they had inside of them. We see how an Israelite easily could have assumed these covenantal blessings apply to them without faith or obedience in Jesus Christ. And in Romans, Paul is trying to thread the needle of rejoicing that the gospel of salvation by faith in Christ is for all people, including the Gentiles, and addressing the question of Israel, asking, what about us? All these promises that God made to us, what does this mean about us? If the Gentiles are included, what about those promises? The answer, well, the Jews are only justified by faith in Jesus, just like the rest of us. 
Even Abraham, Paul says in Romans chapter 4, even Abraham was saved by faith in Christ and not by being Abraham. The guy who God chose had to have faith in God's son. Doesn't the rest of the people that God chose have to have faith in God's son? But it leaves out there the question, has God rejected his promises that he's made to his people? Has God simply chosen to find a new group of people and move on? And this is important to us. Not many of us in here are Jewish ethnically. Some of us are. But not many of us are. But the way that God deals with Israel is indicative of the way that God will deal with those who are not Israel. And if God has forsaken one group of people so that he could choose you, is it not possible for God to choose another group of people and forsake you? So at stake here in this question is really what all of us have. God, how do we know that you will always love us? This is the question that Paul finally answers. He's been building up to it. He finally answers it in Romans 11, and he says this, by no means. In seminary, we learned that, you know, when you say that, you got to, like, slam the table because it's almost a curse word. Um, it's a strong statement. God forbid it ever happened. That's one way to say it. Heaven's no is closer. There's other ways to get even closer. Never, never, ever, that works too. God will never reject his people. Okay, Paul, how do we know? Well, look at the rest of verse 1. He says, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. If God doesn't care or save Jewish people anymore, then Paul himself wouldn't be able to be called an apostle by God. That's his point. Paul simply throws up his arm and says, look at me. I'm Jewish. I'm one of you. I'm of Abraham. In fact, I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And I don't have time to nerd out on all of what those three identifiers mean. But it's, Paul is getting incredibly close to the most royal of the tribes, the most royal of the people, the most honored amongst all the chosen people. And Paul says, look at me. The fact that I'm wholly trusting in Jesus and I've been born again by faith in Christ is proof that God hasn't rejected us. But his argument gets a little clearer because... I don't know if you've ever had a salesman try and sell you a car, and he says, oh, yeah, this is the car I sold to my, my own mother. You're like, well, that's fine, but you might have bad taste. <laughs> An argument from your own experience sometimes lacks credibility. And so Paul pulls back again on Scripture. Look at verse 2. Are you all with me so far? Okay. He says, do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. This is Elijah speaking. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and am left, and they seek my life. Again, Paul is asking the question, but what is God's reply to him? God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Before we understand what the heck that's talking about, I think one of the tangential lessons that we get from the book of Romans is found in how often Paul quotes the Old Testament. He hits, I think, 16 books in the Old Testament in this one letter. This time he quotes from 1 Kings chapter 18. About 80 times in the entire book of Romans, Paul is pulling direct quotations from the Old Testament. 80 times. And I wonder if Paul was alive today, if he would encourage modern Christians to give up on the Old Testament. 
I don't think he would. I think that one of the tangential lessons that Paul has been giving us all throughout this section of Romans 9 through 11 is that if you want to know God's future, you got to know God's past. And may we not be Christians who look at the Old Testament as irrelevant, but see it as the context for which we understand Jesus. So what is the context here in Romans 11, 2 through 4? Well, he's talking about Elijah, whose story shows up in 1 Kings chapter 18. And you may not have grown up in church, which is fine. I'm glad that you're here today. And so let me just give you a little backstory. Elijah is a prophet of God who has a showdown with the false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. That's a place in the Middle East, not in southern Indiana. Elijah has a moment where he unquestionably wins the battle. He literally calls down fire from heaven to light a soaked fire. Um, Last night we were at a a, a nice bonfire. It was raining. And it takes a true pyromaniac to keep a fire going in the rain. And I hope it pleases you to know that at our church we have a deacon who can keep a fire going in the rain. (laughs) But I can't do that. and The prophets of Baal couldn't do that. And this is the miracle that God did to prove that the Lord God, Yahweh, was God. Elijah's God was the true God and not not Baal. Uh, God showed up in this miraculous way where waterlogged logs caught fire from heaven. And so this mountaintop victory in the midst of this, um, Elijah hears that the queen, Jezebel, has heard that he's killed all of her prophets And she's mildly upset would be an understatement. She's livid. She has a bounty on Elijah's head, and Elijah runs out into the wilderness to save his own life. And Elijah goes from fiend, it's an incredibly, like if if you've ever struggled with depression, Elijah's life is an interesting study. Because he, he knows what it is to have a mountaintop experience one moment, and in the next sentence be down in the valley. And he's out running for his life, and He looks to God and he laments to God and he says, God, I prophesy and I prophesy and I prophesy and this is how you repay me? That's my own version of it. But literally, Elijah does claim that he's the only faithful prophet of God left on the planet and now God, it's up to him to save him from Jezebel who's going to kill him. It's almost as if Elijah is trying to manipulate God into protecting him since Elijah is God's last chance he's the last jedi so to speak at proving his goodness at proving god's goodness god if you're really good you got to save me because i'm the only one left and to this elated and depressed prophet god tells him straight up well no i've kept for myself seven thousand men who are truly faithful to me Out of all ethnic Israel, there were 7,000 who were truly gods. That's Paul's commentary, that of all the days of Elijah, Elijah thought he was the only one who was left, that God had forsaken Israel, and God whispered into his ears, no, 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 I got people that you don't even know about. I got people around this globe that you don't even know about, that that you don't have a context for, that you, you, you don't know who they are right now. But there's a remnant. There's a group of people who have been faithful to me. There is a remnant and this is incredibly comforting to us look at what verse 5 says it says so too at the present time there is a remnant that last line there there is a remnant chosen by grace just like yesterday when elijah heard this news just like yesterday when paul wrote this text god's grace is alive today in a remnant 
And the remnant is chosen presently today by grace. By grace. We say, isn't this the same way that the Gentiles are saved and chosen? By grace. And we say, yes. The question is, does this mean that the Jews are saved and chosen by grace too today? The answer is, yes. That's Paul's entire point. If there had been confusion about this in Romans, he's driving to this point right here that we aren't saved by what we do. Thank God. We're saved because God has graciously done the work for us and given us grace. So we need is the thing that we can't earn, we get given to us by Jesus. That's the point. And that salvation is open to Israel too. And even Israel will be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, as Romans 4, Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11 tells us. And the question is, well, will all of Israel be saved? I can think of one child of Abraham who we already know has forfeited his salvation as the one who betrayed Jesus. So philosophically, we can't imagine that in heaven will exist every child of Abraham that ever lived. If we believe that, we would have serious problems with the teachings of Jesus too. But Paul reminds us that there is a remnant chosen. Not the entirety of the nation, a remnant. It's the circle within the circle. And, and, and has God forsaken Israel if all of Israel is not chosen? The answer is no, because by grace he has allowed some to be saved. And that is the reassurance that we find in the remnant. There, there's reassurance in the fact that God has a remnant. If there's even just one person who is living in accordance to God's promises, God has his people. Which brings us to verse 7. We finish out these last four verses here. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. It's like the third time Paul said that in the past three chapters. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it was written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs bend forever. Or they bend their backs forever. Two more passages. Paul quotes Isaiah 29 and Psalm 69 as he applies the condemnations to the Jews who seek God on the very basis of their own righteousness. He calls them people who have eyes that can't see and ears that can't hear. It's very strong condemning language that describes the Jewish animus against the gospel of Jesus Christ. We had Wes and Lori Tabor up on stage not too long ago, two, two, three weeks ago, and they've given testimony doing gospel ministry among practicing Jews to this day that there are people who are very closed off to the gospel. Their hearts are hard, just as Paul said so many years ago they would be, against the grace of God in Jesus, which is the stone and the stumbling block, the rock of offense. And so how do we put this all together? How do we put these 10 verses into context for us? What's the point of all of this? We see that God has been faithful to his people Israel by being faithful to a remnant of Jewish believers. They are the children of Abraham by DNA, and they are spiritual children of Abraham by faith. By this, we see God's enduring love and faithfulness for Israel. 
Later in this chapter, we're going to have to wrestle with uh, this future resurgence amongst Jews towards Jesus as their Messiah, such that Paul says, someday all of Israel will be saved. But that's a message in the future here. God is not done with the descendants of Abraham, though. That's what we need to know today. God is not done with his people. God is not done with Israel. In fact, we could say and we could pray that their best days are yet to come. But what do you and I walk away with from this passage? I think just two things and then I'll be sitting down and we'll be praying to dismiss. First is this. I want you to write this down. I want you to think about this today. I want you to remember this. Friends, God will never forsake his promises. Amen? I mean, this is like the promise of all promises that Paul is talking about here. That somehow God has brought salvation to the entirety of the human race. And yet he still kept his precious promise to those people who he chose so long ago. In God's arms, there's space for everyone. This is another way of saying that God is faithful. God made promises to the descendants of Israel, and God is trustworthy to keep those promises. And so in the coming weeks, we're going to examine how many of these promises belong to the church today. But for right now, what I think this means for our community right here is this, is that since God keeps his promises, we need to know God's promises. God's promises keep us from being swallowed up in fear by our circumstances. They started playing music, so you tuned out. Let me say that again. God's promises keep us from being swallowed up by fear of our circumstances. Too many Christians peek their head out from the sand, look around, and they're not standing on the promises. They are looking at, God, at the circumstances and they live their lives in fear when God's promises give us not a spirit of fear, but of faith. And if we know God's promises, we can stand on God's promises. Too many Christians, though, I think they read God's promises like they read tea leaves. They imagine they find God's promises in trees and out their window when they're asleep at night. But Christians, if Paul's taught us anything, God's promises are found in God's word. Do you want to know the promises of God? Open a better app on your phone. Get your head buried in God's book. God is not hiding. He's not a punitive parent who's trying to play this ridiculously sardonic game of hide and seek with you. God is a God who wants you to know him so much so that he's written down his promises and they've endured for thousands of years. We have a faithful God. We have a faithful God. We ought to know his promises. When you know God's promises, you know how he's been faithful before so that whenever you hit a patch in your life where it feels like he ain't acting the way he said he would, you can look up at him and say, God, I don't know how you're going to do it, but you've done it before and I know you're going to do it again. you got to know his promise. This past Thursday, Kristen and I, we, uh, we celebrated our 10-year anniversary as a married couple. And uh, it was great. Love you. It struck me that an anniversary is really the um, anniversary of a promise, right? 
the vow that you made at your wedding day. Anyone can get married. I don't have to say more than that for you to know today. Anyone can get married. Not everybody can keep their promise. So we pledged 10 years ago our faithfulness to each other. That was the promise, that we would put our needs of the other person ahead of our own needs through sickness, through health, through riches, through poverty. And and here's why those promises are foundational for us because whenever the circumstances of life get uncomfortable, I don't have to question if I get sick if Kristen will leave me. Right? That's what that meant. Because Romans 11 says... Right? If we get in a tough place financially, if we get whatever, we have a promise from the other, we're not going to bail. Our love isn't conditioned by our circumstances. It's foundationed by our promises. So friends, you have promises from a faithful God made to you to reassure you that though life might get uncomfortable, he hasn't uncoupled himself from you. We stand on what we know, and I know my God is able. I know my God is almighty. I know my God is a rock amidst of trouble. I know my God is patient. I know my God is gracious. I know my God is merciful. I know my God is a warrior. I know my God is justice. I know my God fights my battles. I know he hears me when I call his name. I know salvation is found in no other name except for Jesus I can stand firm in faith because he's promised to always be our great present God. That's what this tells me. So some of us have walked through life when it felt like death. And you could, if you had the microphone right now, stand up and proclaim to all of us that I know God's promises and he doesn't forsake his promises. Because God keeps his promises, we also know this. Here's the second thing. Write it down. God keeps his promises and God keeps his people. God keeps his promises and God keeps his people. If you've ever wondered what Romans 11 is all about, it's about those two things. We have a God who keeps his promises and he keeps his people. He will never forsake his people. All He say it this way, all God's kids are safe. And who are his kids? That's the big question. Israel is his people, but really, all the children of God are those who call in the name of Jesus Christ to be saved, whether they're from Israel or not. And if you've called on Jesus' name, you will never be forsaken. You can run from here this morning and rest assured and be reassured that God is not against you. God is for you. You can stand with confidence and sing a million times over, you are good. You're good. Why? Because you don't forsake your promises and you don't forsake your people. Because I can stand here today and no matter what I've walked into this auditorium with, I can put it down in front of God and say, I know you're being good with this thing in front of me. I know this is difficult for me to see around. This is an obstacle in my path that I don't really have the vision or the endurance or the patience to see how this sickness is going to bring the end of my father. But I know, God, you're good in the midst of it. I don't know how this challenge in my job is going to help bring provision to my family, but I know, God, you're in the midst of it. I don't know how my kids in their teenage years are going to turn out, but dear God, I know you are good in the midst of it. 
And you've called me as your child, and you'll keep me as your child. You ain't going nowhere. I got a dad who's in the house. We see in this passage a striking reassurance in this remnant that the people who get the front row seat for the miraculous life is, check this out, it's Israel. The first to hear that the kingdom of God has come was Israel. The Holy Spirit fell upon children of Israel. What ethnicity are all the apostles? Jewish. Where does the era of the church begin? Jerusalem. No Israelite could ever accuse God of not fulfilling his promises because God keeps his promises and he keeps his people. So friends, why do you worry? Why? God knows exactly what we need. Has God ever let you down? Friends, has God ever let you down? Right here, right now, you might need to be dealing with some disappointment in your life, but you have to answer this question, has God ever let you down in the negative? Because no, he's a God who keeps his promises. And so we may have word of cancer, but he's been faithful in the midst of uncertainty always. And our spouses betrayed us, but God never has. And our government says it's for the people, but it may not always feel like it's for the people, but our God is for all the people. He's going to take you through it all. He always has. He always will. (laughs) There's no one. There's no one like our God.